So we're continuing our series, uh, Songs of the Saints, and today we're going to be looking at um, the 90th Psalm, the Psalm that we read together. And one of the unique features about Psalm 90 is that it is a Psalm of Moses. Uh, The previous Psalms that we've looked at have been Psalms of David, uh, but here this Psalm is attributed to Moses. Now there is some debate among scholars as to whether Moses wrote the Psalm or his name appears here for other reasons, but that Uh, really isn't important. We're just going to go with the conviction that Moses is the author of this psalm or of this song. And there's a precedent for that, really, because in Deuteronomy, in the uh, 32nd chapter, we have there what is clearly referred to as the song of Moses or a song of Moses. And uh, that that song there was written by Moses as a prophecy of the future of Israel after his death. God spoke to Moses and said, um, write this song, and this will be a song that uh, the children of Israel will sing at some point in their history. And so Moses wrote that song there that's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32. But interestingly, when we come to the New Testament, we also find reference to uh, the a song of Moses. In Revelation 15, those who have gotten victory over the beast are standing on a sea of glass with harps of God, singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And so this we're going to understand as um, a psalm, a a song that was written by Moses and placed here in this great uh, book of the songs of the nation of Israel. So this psalm, just like in uh, Deuteronomy 32, there is a prophetic note that looks ahead to the people's sin and God's discipline but then to his showing mercy and restoring them. And so we're gonna see that as we go through the psalm. There are five things here that I want us to consider. Number one, God's eternality. We're going to consider that initially. And then we're going to look at our own uh, fragility or mortality. And then thirdly, uh, human sinfulness and God's holiness. Fourth, God's compassion and mercy. And then finally, our fifth and final point will be our need to live wisely during our brief sojourn here in this world. But before we jump into those five points, um, let's just look at the first verse here because it's important and it starts us um, with just this idea of God's eternality. But it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So that's how the psalm starts. Just that reminder, Lord, you've always been there. You've been our dwelling place in all generations. The word dwelling place uh, in other uh, uh, versions is translated, um, first of all, it's, it's translated um, refuge, it's translated protector, it's translated home. In other words, the, the idea here is that 
for, for all of God's people for all time, he has been that place where we find uh, our, our protection, we find our provision, we find our, our place of rest. And Moses is acknowledging that um, right up front here. So here's the thing for us to think about. The God who watched over and took care of Moses and the children of Israel is the God who is taking care of the church and all of us today. That, that to me is always, um, it's kind of a mind blower, you know, to just think as, as we read through the scriptures and especially here in the Psalms because we're going back thousands of years and we're finding encouragement and strength and comfort and to think that these words have brought that same kind of thing to God's people over all of these long, long centuries. And it's the same God, the, the same God who uh, Moses could say, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. We today can say the same thing as well. As A.W. Tozer said, since God is eternal, he can be and continue forever to be the one safe home for his time-driven children. He, he continues to be the one safe home, that dwelling place for all of us who are in time. So then that takes us to the subject of God's eternality, which is what Moses uh, addresses here. And um, let's, let's look at two verses here, verses two, uh, verse two and verse four. And so he says, uh, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So that's the statement right there of God's eternality. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Then verse four, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. So from everlasting to everlasting, this uh, again is, is a way of describing what we call uh, God's eternality. This is one of the attributes of God. This is one of the things about God that make him God. There are uh, certain attributes that are, um, when you talk about the attributes of God, the, the characteristics of God, uh, you generally in theological language, you, you put them into two categories. There are the communicable attributes and the non-communicable. So communicable means that there are attributes that God shares with us. And so his uh, attribute of love, uh, we, we also have the, that capacity for love. Uh, even holiness, we have a capacity for holiness. But then there are certain attributes, they're the non-communicable. This means that they're not shared uh, with anyone. These are exclusively God's attributes and the eternality of God is one of them. So there's only one being who is eternal and that being is God. You know, the question uh, sometimes arises, who made God? Um, that is uh, a common question from children, but also from adults. And I like the way J.I. Packer uh, answered this question in his uh, timeless classic book, Knowing God. Listen to what he said. He said, created things 
have a beginning and an ending, but not so their creator. The answer to the question, who made God, is simply that God did not need to be made, for he was always there. He exists forever, and he is always the same. He does not grow older. His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers, nor lose those that he once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. And so this is the idea of, of God's eternality. He always has been, he always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the way um, this eternal nature is spoken of in the New Testament. And it's actually there in that passage in Hebrews, it's actually applied to Jesus Christ. And so the eternality of God, and, and for us, this, there's so many things about this that are so wonderful uh, for us because tied into the eternality of God is what is also called the immutability of God, meaning that God doesn't change. So we can have this absolute confidence that God is not going to change. He's not going to change his mind toward us. He's not going to change his plan in regard to us. He's not one day going to just say, you know, I'm sick of this planet and all these evil people. And so I'm just going to nuke it and be done with it once and forever. Um, we can be confident that God's not going to do that because he's already told us what he's going to do. He's going to redeem all things. He's going to ultimately bless and make all things good. And his immutability is connected to his eternality. So God was before time ever began. And when time is no more, God will still be. He will, he will in a sense, literally be unfazed by it all. And so this, this is where we begin. We begin considering the psalm with a consideration of this great theological truth that our God is the eternal God. That as far as you can think back and beyond that, and as far as you can think forward and beyond that, from everlasting to everlasting, you are the Lord. And so now in the psalm, we switch to looking at mankind. And we see here um, that we as human beings are not that. We are obviously not uh, eternal. We are mortal. And in verses 3, 5, 6, and 10, we have this reminder that is spelled out for us. So look at verse 3. Um, you turn, speaking regarding God, uh, speaking about God, uh, you turn man to dust and say, return, O children of men, or you could translate men here, Adam. So this is just the reality that our lives are temporal. And that's the contrast that, the, um, that Moses is making here. And then he says um, in verse five, you carry them away like a flood, they are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. 
In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. And then look at verse 10. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. And so again, this is just the reminder of the reality that we all are living with. And that is the reality of the brevity of our lives, the temporal nature of our lives here on earth. And the, there's the contrast between God who is eternal and we who, whose lives are uh, temporary. And it's interesting, if we think about Moses as the author of this psalm, uh, notice he, he says here, uh, he gives a 70 to 80 year lifespan. And, you know, that even still holds pretty true to, uh, to this very day. Um, but it's interesting in that Moses was, he lived to be 120 years old. And um, some in his generation lived to uh, a similar age. Uh, but we believe that Moses here, of course, is speaking prophetically and, and through time, um, the, the age span would, would decrease. Uh, so to where we get to David, for example, and David lives to be 70 years old. He comes to the throne when he's 30 and he reigns for 40 years. And so he, uh, at the age of 70, David, his life is, is over. And so it's just, these, these passages are all a reminder of, of what we're told in the New Testament, in the book of James, where the question is asked, what is your life? And then the answer, it is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You know, I was looking on, um, I was looking on the internet for uh, quotes about the brevity of life. And you know, you can go to these different sites, uh, Goodreads and Brainy Quotes and all these different uh, places. And they'll, they'll have a number of quotes by different people throughout history. And you know, as I was reading through um, a bunch of the different ones, going all the way back to the Roman period, right on up to today, I thought, you know, there's, there's no word on this uh, topic of the brevity of life to even closely match the words that we find in the scripture, and namely the passage that I just read to us. What is your life? James says. Your life, he says, it is even a vapor that appears for a moment. And, and wow, what a picture we think about that. A, a vapor, you know, think about uh, being out in, in cool weather, you know, maybe in, on a cool morning and you go outside and as you... Um, you know, as you exhale, uh, of course, you've got that, that sort of mist, that vapor that is right there in front of you. But before you, you can even <laughs> focus on it, it, it disappears. It vanishes. And that's, that's the picture here. That, that's the reality of our lives. Um, as, as we're looking at all of these passages, like the, like the grass in the morning, the grass comes up, and by the evening, the grass has already withered. And so that is our frailty. That is our mortality. But then the psalm also addresses the issue of human sinfulness 
and God's holiness. And we see that in verses seven through nine and also in verse 11. So uh, verse seven, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. And then verse 10, we've already looked at that, but let's just read right through it. Uh, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. And then who knows the power of your anger for as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Now, again, as, as we're looking at this psalm, it's a psalm that is, um, you know, it's, 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 it's doing two things, really. It's reminding us of the greatness of God. It's reminding us of the glory of God in regard to his eternality. It's reminding us not only of the frailty of human life, but it's also reminding us of the reality of the sinfulness of um, human beings like all of us, uh, that, that we are sinful. And as a result of that sinfulness, that sin that originally entered into the world, that has in and of itself made life on earth difficult and unpleasant uh, at times. But then there's the additional component uh, where there are judgments that do come from God because of the sinfulness of humanity. So I just think that we need to remind ourselves, contrary to popular opinion, sin is a real thing. It's a real thing in as much as um, there are things that God has forbidden human beings to do and sin is participating in those things that God has forbidden us to do. So it is a real thing. And we have to know this as well. Sin is an affront to God. Sin offends God. It is something that he does not uh, smile upon. It is something that he frowns upon. And as we see the you know, somewhat harsh wording here used in the Psalm about God's wrath and God's anger and so forth, we tend today to want to think that, well, that's just an old, outdated view of God. We understand that God is not like that. God is loving. He's patient. Uh, he understands. He's not really going to judge anybody. Um, well, let's, let's be clear. God is loving. God is patient. He does understand, but he also has requirements and he holds people to those requirements. So uh, sin is a real thing. Sin is a front to God. Sin has real consequences. There are things that are just built in as consequences to sin. Now, some theologians uh, believe that sin uh, brings with it its own judgment. So they don't want to think of God as being a judge or ever punishing anybody. Uh, they recognize that there is sin. They recognize that sin, you know, does need to be dealt with and, you know, punished, if you will. But they see, they see this uh, as something that's built into sin itself. So, you know, it's, it's like the, if you violate the law of gravity, you jump off a building, you're going to splat on the, on the concrete. 
And so likewise, if you commit these kinds of sins, there are gonna be these consequential outcomes that you have to deal with. That is true. Sin has, in some ways, its own built-in punishment, but there is another level as well that we cannot ignore, and that is the fact that sometimes God does judge, and ultimately God will judge, and sometimes he even judges his own people. Um, So sometimes it's not just merely that he's letting the consequences of sin play out as a disciplinary measure, but sometimes he's actually intervening and he is, uh, he's judging his people. And when we look at this 90th Psalm, that is clearly what Moses is describing. That the people have, of course, lived in um, sin. And look at uh, verse eight. You set our iniquities before you. And iniquities is a word that it doesn't refer to just simply shortcomings. You know, sometimes the word sin can even be understood as a shortcoming because the the English word sin, which translates uh, in the the New Testament um, and, and the Old Testament as well, uh, the the words that it translates it uses the English word sin, and the English word sin means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. So you could see it as a shortcoming. Well, it's a falling short of what God required. But then you have other words. You have transgression, for example. And here you have the word iniquity. And so these are levels of sin, if you will, that go deeper and imply a a willing revolt, uh, a willing crossing of the line. And so he speaks of our iniquities and our secret sins in the light of your countenance. So we cannot forget, and especially in our day and age where there's a tendency to um, not want to even address this, we cannot forget that God is still holy. He is still righteous and he still has a righteous requirement for his people. I was listening to a conversation between some Christian leaders the other day and um, they, were, they were talking about the love of God and they were talking about reaching the culture and all of it was good and I enjoyed it. Um, but, I, but I had to say as I listened to them, I had to say that I felt like they were in, in their desire to sort of offset the, the negative picture of God as being a God who's just a God of judgment and wrath and, and a God who is a God of rules and you know just gonna make your life really difficult and if you don't abide, you're gonna be put on the outside. And you know they, they wanted to offset that. And I think that's legitimate. We need to offset that. Sometimes the picture that we're painting is not really accurate. But I felt like, as I listened to this conversation, I felt like the pendulum swung just a little bit too far to the other side uh, because they, they had gone to the point of, of, of saying, you know, that, um, I mean, almost just that kind of the idea, you know, that God is love, he's so loving that it's almost like he's never gonna judge anybody. He's sympathetic, he understands, and he's just gonna overlook those things. And oftentimes they use the example of Jesus who came. And oftentimes I hear people say, well, Jesus came and he hung out with the marginalized and the sinners and all of that, uh, which is true. But 
Remember, Jesus had an objective. It wasn't just to come and hang out with sinners. It was come, uh, he, he came to turn sinners away from their sin and to turn them toward himself. And so we cannot lose this biblical balance of God being a God of love, absolutely, but God also simultaneously being a holy and a righteous God who has requirements and who does judge and on occasion uh, punish his children, discipline them in, in forms of punishment that are corrective and meant to um, turn them away from their sin. And so we see that built into this psalm because this is a part of the psalm that, that Moses is talking about here. Obviously, the background is the people have sinned against God. They've left God, but, and he, he's acknowledging the fact that there's been uh, God's anger, that there has been God's wrath, but then he brings us back around to the beautiful reality that our God is a God of compassion and a God of mercy. And so he comes to that in verses 13 through 17. And so look what he says. He says, return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us the years in which we have seen evil. So Moses is, in, he's praying in a sense here and he's, he's saying to the Lord, Lord, we've been disciplined. We've, we've been judged. We've been punished. But Moses understood God as a compassionate and a merciful God. So he's now saying, Lord, um, would you now turn around and would you bless us? That's his prayer. And then he goes on, and I think in verses uh, 16 through 17, what we see is we see the confidence of Moses that that is indeed what God will do. Look what he says. He says, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I see this as, um, as, a, as an absolute confidence on the part of Moses, an absolute conviction on the part of Moses that because of God's compassion, that because of his mercy, this is exactly what we can expect, expect from him. And so... As, as we think about even our own sins, as we think about our, our, our failures, as we think about our disobediences and things like that, which all of us to some degree or another have been guilty of those things. And sometimes we have had to live with the consequences of that. Uh, sometimes there's been an active um, sort of a judgment that comes upon us by the Lord. But... It's always with the objective of bringing us back. And when he brings us back, this is a beautiful thing. When he brings us back, we can expect him to bless us. See, God, God doesn't hold a grudge. It's not like um, we sin, God deals with us, we repent. And then as we move forward, God says, well, you know, I, I would bless you, but the last time I did that, 
you really went astray. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm not ready to do that yet. And we have to understand, although we as human beings behave like that, uh, God doesn't behave like that. And Moses understands that, that God is a God who not only restores us, but he blesses us um, after we have gone through that time of, of uh, correction, that time of chastening, if you will. And so let's just look at each one of these, uh, the four points here. And, and let's look at them through the lens of this is what God wants to do. Let your work appear to your servants. Oh, I love that. Lord, let, let your work appear to your servants. Maybe, um, maybe we've been distracted. Maybe we've been uh, not engaged in, in the work of God. Maybe, maybe we've lost sight of what God is doing. But the prayer is, is, Lord, let your work appear to your servants. Lord, let us see what you're doing. Lord, let us re-engage in the great uh, mission that uh, you are accomplishing through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. I love that. And I, I want that for my life. I want that for your lives, that, that God's work would appear uh, to us. And secondly, your glory to their children. Oh, and this is the one where uh, anybody who has children, anybody who has grandchildren, you know, this, this is the cry of our hearts. Lord, we've seen your glory. We've known about your great works in a sense. Lord, may that same glory, may that appear to our children. May they know that. I know for myself, this is a big uh, prayer of mine. I pray for my children. I pray for my grandchildren. I pray, Lord, you know, you did something in my life. You did something through my life. You did something with my life. And Lord, I'm praying, I want you to do the same thing in the lives of my children. I want, you, I want them to see your glory. I want them to understand your greatness. I want them to uh, be able to say that, Lord, um, you know, you have been our dwelling place. You have been our protector. You have been our uh, sustainer. You've been, you've been the place where we have found rest. I want them to say that for themselves. And I know you want that too. And this is a prayer that Moses is expressing. And it's a prayer that I think we all can express as well. And then he says this, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Now for me in my mind, I just picture all of this, you know, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Just that, um, that hand of the Lord on our lives. You know, when God's hand is on your life, there's a beauty about that. There's something that's, that's extraordinary about it. There's something that's not even um, a lot of times explainable. Uh, people will just say like, you know, I don't know, there's something about this person. And what that is, is that's the thing that Moses is talking about here. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. I think of, uh, you know, our calling to be like Jesus. And we, we do not become like Jesus through in a sense, we don't become like Jesus through our own efforts of trying to be more like Jesus. Um, 
I mean, we do have to put forth effort, but we become more like Jesus by allowing him to just have uh, more and more presence in our lives. And as we do that, his life shines forth from our lives. And when you see somebody who uh, Christ is living in them and Christ is shining through them, there's a beauty about that. There's something precious. There's something very, very attractive. And so let the, the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Um, remember the first part. Let your work appear to your servants. And then in the end, Lord, establish the work of our hands. The work that we're doing is the work that God's doing. And we're just praying, Lord, would you establish it? Would you solidify it? Would you, would you give it permanence? Would you cause it to uh, bear lasting fruit? So like I said, this is the prayer that Moses is praying, but it's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of expectation. Moses is praying this is because this is what God wants to do. And, and I think we should never forget that. This is what, this is an expression of what God wants to do. He wants to reveal his work to us. He wants his glory to be not on us only, but to our children. And he wants his beauty to reside upon us. And he wants to establish those things that we are doing that he has called us to do. Now, you probably noticed that there's one verse that we have skipped. And that was intentional. And that's because this 12th verse that we're going to now close with, this ties everything together. And look at what verse 12 says. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So remember the context. He's talking about the brevity of our lives. He's talking about the fact that, as James said, our lives are but a vapor. So, since that is the case, Lord, teach us to number our days. Lord, teach us to, to realize that we don't have an unlimited amount of time. We have a lifetime that even if it extends out to the 70 or 80 or 90 or even 100 years, it's brief. It's, it's, a, it's a brief period of time. And so teach us, Lord, to know that that is the case and then to, in light of that, gain a heart of wisdom. I think it's the King James Version that says, apply our hearts to wisdom. The idea is in light of the brevity of life and the temporal nature of my presence here in the world, Lord, in light of that, help me to live wisely. Show me, give me the wisdom on how I am to live my life that is not uh, unlimited in duration, that is here for a moment and then is suddenly over. Uh, Lord, help me to live wisely in light of that. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart 
of wisdom. You know, as I, as I look at this passage, I was just thinking, um, how, how, how do we uh, really apply this? And as I just began to think about the different ways uh, that this verse might be applied, I just want to take and, and just really quickly just give us five, um, five things that wisdom will lead us to do. So number one, wisdom would tell us this, that life is short. So the wise person recognizes what life is short. Therefore, I, I really can't waste another day living for myself, living for ephemeral things, living for things that don't matter. Life is short. In other words, I need to make the best of the days that I have. I need to live wholeheartedly for Christ. I need to live wholeheartedly for him. You know, this past uh, week, I listened to the, um, the podcast that I always brag about, uh, Women Worth Knowing, that is done by my wife, Cheryl, and her friend, Jasmine. And this past week, the episode was um, the first in, I think, two or three on Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, some of you might know her name. Uh, she was married to a man named Jim Elliot, and Jim Elliot and four of his friends their lives were uh, taken from them in an effort to reach the Waodani people uh, in Ecuador back in 1956. So they went in uh, with a heart, a missionary heart, to bring the gospel to this warring tribe. And in the process, they were murdered. And so anyway, not to get off on the details of that, you can listen to the podcast if you want to. But, um, but Jim Elliott, in his journal when he was a, 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 you know, a little bit younger and preparing for a life of service to the Lord, he said something that was very profound. And I, that, this always sticks with me. I think about it. He said, uh, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So what is it that we can't keep? We can't keep our lives. We can't keep ourselves alive. We don't have control over that. Our lives are a vapor, as we've already seen. Life is short. And I don't have the time to waste another day living for myself. I need to live wholeheartedly for Christ. And that is what Jim Elliot did. And that is what we all need to do. And I can speak to you now as a person who is in my 60s. And I mean, even when I say I'm in my 60s, it sounds like, what? How can I even say that I'm in my 60s? Uh, but I am. And I, like everybody else who reaches this stage in life, you look back and you think, well, there's more time behind me than there is ahead of me. And I can't believe how quickly it has passed. And whatever's ahead of me, that's going to pass very quickly as well. And, and that is the reality. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom says, live wholeheartedly for Christ. Because when it's all said and done, that will be the thing that matters more than anything else. Secondly, wisdom would say, lay aside today, right now, 
lay aside every weight and the sin that is impeding us and, and run with perseverance, run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, as a Christian, you are in a race. You're not racing against me. You're not racing against your fellow Christians. You're, you're in a race against time. You're in a race against, uh, you know, the, um, the opposition to the kingdom of God. And there are things that are gonna hold us back. There are things that are gonna slow us down. There are things that are gonna uh, prevent us from, from persevering. And so whatever those things are, and I'm quoting here from Hebrews chapter 12, but there's two things that he mentions. Lay aside uh, every weight and the sin. Every weight and the sin that so easily um, impedes us. So there are weights and sins. Sins are obvious. If there's sin in my life, sin is gonna slow me down. It's gonna drag me down. It's gonna keep me from uh, running the way God has called me to run. So, um, you know, what is sin? Well, just open up the Bible and it is pretty clear telling us the things that are sinful. And those are things that are kind of the obvious things that we are not to be engaged in. But then there's this word weights. What does that mean? Well, a weight is not necessarily a sin, but it's just, it's an impediment. It's, it's something that is, it's there that's, holding you back or preventing you from giving everything that you have in this race. And so that it could be anything. It could be something that's, that's actually innocent in one sense because it doesn't have any, uh, it's sort of morally neutral. Um, but nevertheless, because it's come in and taken so much of your energy and your focus and all of that, it, it's, it's become something that's holding you back and slowing you down. And you will know what that is. But wisdom would say that I need to set that aside. That's what wisdom would say. Set that aside. Run with perseverance, the race that is set before us. Thirdly, wisdom would say, train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. You know, as we go through life, and of course, the older we get, you realize that, man, life habits are important. Uh, think of it just in the sense of um, physical training. You know, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that um, I can't just sit around and do nothing. I've got I've to exercise. I've got to get out. I've got to get my blood flowing. I've got to get my heart rate up. I've got to do those kinds of things. Um, and and those, those are things that are going to, you know, hopefully give me strength and preserve me so I'm able to you know, serve the law, the, the Lord as, as long as possible. Well, we, as God's people, we need to train ourselves in um, spiritual things. We need to train ourselves in godliness. And we need to recognize that godliness doesn't just happen to us. We can't just sit by passively. And now because we've received Jesus, we think now I just hang out and I'm just gonna become everything that God wants me to be. No, there's a, a component where we have to engage and we have to uh, train ourselves. And so these are things that are common and they're commonly known, but like even 
you know, an exercise or a workout. We can sometimes, I know this. I know I'm supposed to do this. I know I need to get out of bed and go take that run. I know I need to do that workout. But uh, tomorrow, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And we can do the very same thing with spiritual things. So what are the things that are going to train us? Well, you know, Bible meditation. There's no substitute for Bible meditation. Bible meditation, meaning you open the Bible yourself and you get before God and you say, God, teach me. God, speak to me. And you do that consistently. Bible meditation, prayer, that's obvious. We know what prayer is, but it's not just praying before a meal. It's not just praying before a big event in our lives that we're asking God to help us with, but it's praying always. It's just developing a life of conversation with God and, and you know, speaking to him um, about our own lives and the lives of others. And then fellowship. When we talk about fellowship and um, fellowship and discipleship, I want to kind of put those two things together. Because sometimes we mistake uh, just hanging out for fellowship. But fellowship has a component to it where we are mutually building one another up in the faith. So fellowship is putting myself in a place where I am going to be built up and I am going to in turn build up other Christians. And so again, it's not just showing up, sitting in the back, listening to a sermon, and then going about my business for the week. No, I've got to be more involved. I've got to train. I've got to get there with the team early uh, in the morning and do the calisthenics and take the lap around the, the track and, and those kinds of things. Um, that's, that's what fellowship is. And then um, give, giving of your... Uh, resources. This is a discipline. This is a, something you train yourself to do. Our tendency is to not give. Our tendency is to withhold. Our tendency is to be, um, you know, of course, at times our tendency is to be uh, selfish. And so I, I train myself. No, I, I need to give, um, serve. I, I actively get myself involved in things that God uh, is doing. And so I serve, and this is a part of giving, right? I'm going to give my time. I'm going to step away from my pleasure maybe, and I'm going to go serve someone else. I'm going to serve the greater purpose of the kingdom of God. And there's other things that we could add to this, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. But the point is training yourself to godliness. And then fourthly, wisdom would say, learn all you can about God. Learn all you can. Get to know the Lord. Learn all you can about God through the Bible. Uh, understand the gospel. Uh, Get yourself into some theology. Read theology. Get to, get to understand what some of the, the deeper things mean. Uh, read about Christian history. Study Christian history. Know who you're connected to. See the, the men and women that God has um, worked in and through their lives over the centuries. Know what God has been doing. Uh, know God's world. This is God's world. And to know about it, to understand it. So, wisdom says, I'm going to train myself. Wisdom says, I'm going to learn all I can. Basically, wisdom says, I'm going to devote myself to the things of the Spirit of God so that however much time I have left here in this world, it's going to be time well spent. It's going to be time that is used for the great purpose 
of God's glory. And then finally, wisdom says, live by faith. Live by faith. Now, the other voice is going to say, don't do that. Don't take any risk. Just settle in. Be comfortable. Have an easy life. Just try to get by. Just, you know, just make it. Don't worry about excelling or anything like that. But, you know, wisdom says, no, live by faith. Trust God and let him lead your life. Let him lead you in an adventure where you're going to take risk. You're going to look at something and say, man, that, you know, that, wow, that's kind of risky, but I, I feel like God wants me to do it. The, the alternative is, well, I could just stay here and I'm going to be comfortable. And, but no, God's saying, no, take that risk. Live by faith. Uh, love God. L- love God. That, that's wisdom. Says love God. And then finally, love people. And when I say love people, what that means practically is invest in people. You see, it's easy to say, I love people. I love all those people over there. But really loving people is investing in people's lives. And you see, again, these are the things that matter. These are the things that, that in the end, um, these are the things that we take with us. These are the things that are going to be weighed out when we transition out of time into eternity. Um, it's, it's the impact that we've had. So finally, in closing, live your life every day with an eye on eternity. Live your life with an eye on eternity. Jesus put it like this. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And in that context, Jesus is talking about literally things. You know, he's talking about earthly treasures. But, but any, anything can be a treasure. But the point is, do not, lay, do not lay up things here on earth. That's not the priority. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Live life with an eye on eternity because before you know it, we will take a step out of time into eternity. And then the only thing that will really matter is did we live wisely? Did we apply our hearts to the wisdom of God? And through that, did we live the life that God created us and saved us to live? So that's my encouragement to you and that's my encouragement to myself. So Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God, Lord, you are from everlasting to everlasting as we have seen. You are eternal, Lord, and you're, you're always the same in the best sense of that. You never change and therefore you're completely dependent. And Lord, you're a God who even when we sin, even when we uh, have made a mess of things. Lord, you're the God who through compassion and mercy, you come and you restore and you give us a new start. And Lord, you you call us to um, start fresh, but to uh, do that in light of the brevity of life and to live wisely. So help us, Lord, to do that. I pray for everyone who is um, watching today. I pray that each and every one would take to heart 
the exhortation to realize the obvious that our lives are short and that, Lord, we want to live every moment for the glory of our Lord Jesus who lived his life and died for us. So help us to do that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.